This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 88 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Jerry Seinfeld one of the greatest comedians of all time, the co-creator, co-writer, and star of the legendary 1990s NBC comedy series that bears his name, and most recently, the creator and host of the Crackle web series, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which is nominated this year for the Emmy for Best Variety Talk Series. Over the course of our conversation in a downtown New York apartment where Seinfeld sometimes works, the 62-year-old opens up about a host of topics. What drew him to comedy in the first place? How he arrived at the style of stand-up that he employs to this day? And how stand-up eventually paved the way for the sitcom Seinfeld? How he and Larry David first crossed paths, developed what he does not regard as a show about nothing, and implemented rules for themselves that resulted in a program unlike any other before it? What it was like after Seinfeld ended, and what he learned from some of his stumbles that followed, such as the animated film B-Movie and the reality show The Marriage Ref, which, believe it or not, helped to inspire comedians in cars. Why that show, the main ingredients of which are funny friends of his, cars he loves, and GoPro cameras, has found such a massive following and attracted guests up to and including President Barack Obama, and what he makes of the world today, as in what Seinfeld might have been like in the 21st century, what political correctness has done to comedy, and what his own plans are for the future. All in all, it's a rare and candid conversation with a legend, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go to it. Jerry, thank you so much for doing this. My really pleasure. appreciate it. To begin with, we always ask just where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Uh, I was born in Brooklyn in, on 52nd Street in Borough Park at the um, Long Island College Hospital. And when I was one, my parents moved us out of Brooklyn to the suburbs of Long Island, Nassau County, Massapequa. We lived in two different homes there. And that was my childhood. And it was very nice there. And my dad was a salesman, eventually started a sign shop and hired guys to paint signs on storefronts and trucks. And, and he had a nice little business there. And that was, that was how our family survived. My mom took in sewing. Mm-hmm in our basement and she would sew drapes and dresses or whatever people in the neighborhood needed. And she worked as a bookkeeper at my dad's shop. I worked in my dad's shop, answering the phone and sweeping up. That was also in Massapequa. 
And uh, that was it. Yeah. That was how we did it. We've had a number of comedians on the podcast, and a few of them, most recently last week, Eddie Murphy, said, if there's ever proof that you don't need to have a tortured past to become a great comedian, you are it. So is it true that your childhood was pretty pleasant? Happy? Very pleasant. Yeah. Yes. Very nice. It, torture is internal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people just need torture, and if it doesn't exist, they manufacture they it. <laughs> so where do you feel your sense of humor comes from? Well, I don't know. My dad is very, very funny. I think it's, I, I, having had children now, and kind of seen the nature and nurture of, of it, I, I would say I, I would be of the opinion that it's mostly genetic. Yeah. As opposed to environmental. And then you still have to hone it, though, obviously. And in your case, there were some comedians that, when you were a kid who really meant a lot to you? Every comedian meant a lot to me and still does. Yeah, just people that do that or strive to do that, to me, just uh, that's the air in the world. Were there one or two who really particularly hooked you on it? Yeah. I mean, there are some you love more than others. I, I always say that comedy is really like food. It's... Everybody kind of likes the same thing, but nobody really likes the same thing. And, you know, that's why you have to have a menu because right. everybody's in a different mood and wants a different flavor. And uh, comedy's like that. It's like you could take your closest friends, family members, right. and sit down and talk about, pick three comedians and talk about them. Right. And guaranteed someone will say, I love that person. Or, I hate that person. Or, you know, people are very opinionated about it. Right. When you went off to Queens College, what did you imagine you would end up doing with your life after that? At that point, what were you thinking? I thought I'd be a columnist for a car magazine. It seemed to be something I might be able to do. I used to read a lot of car magazines, and it seemed like if you could write about cars in an amusing way, maybe that would be something I could do. So what happened while you were there that sort of changed the direction? I got in, I fell in with a few guys, some New York guys, Queens guys, and they were very into comedy, like everybody in New York is. New York is a very, is a comedy culture. Mm -hmm. Comedy uh, really began in New York. The, what we think of as the business of comedy began in New York. So... We talked a lot about comedy. It was always a lot of joking around. And then there was driving around to see comedians. And we would go find them. We would go to the Catskills if there was a comedian there. And there was lots of shows. They had late shows in the Catskills where they would have younger comedians. And then as soon as we found uh, Catch a Rising Star in the Improv, we were all over that. And we used to go and go and go and watch everybody. And... I had this secret dream of it, but I would never say it. And then one day, one of the guys said to me, he says, you know, I think of all of us, you might be the one that could do it if you tried. And really, I, I can honestly say I had been waiting to hear that yeah. my whole childhood. And once I heard that, that someone thought that I could actually do it, yeah. then then the, the, all the dominoes kind of fell into each other. And you looked at it, you've always seemed to have treated it like a job in the sense of you put in your hours. It's not like something you, you just played around with. And the thing that I found very interesting was that while in college you did a thesis on stand-up? I did. My last six months of college, I got out of 
going to school by making up this, I don't know if it was nonsense or not, but I made up this whole thing that I'm going to study the world of stand-up comedy for 12 credits. Yeah. Professor Greenberg, let me get away with it. <laughs> let, let me just clarify one thing that you said about looking at comedy as a job. Yeah. That's not really the way I approach it. I, I approach it very uh, carefully and scientifically because it's so risky. And comedy or any, any of these types of endeavors, your success is not about taking risk. It's about eliminating risk. My favorite method of analogy is usually uh, baseball. Yeah. So a pitcher you know, has to figure out each, for each hitter that he's facing, what is it that I can do that this guy can't hit? He's got to figure that out. It's not just about his talent. It's about applying that talent to the situation and to the problem. And comedy is extremely difficult and risky, and failure in comedy is spectacular. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a big failure. Right. It's apparent to everyone. It's uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. It's very painful. So... I always approach this like, what can I do to eliminate as much as I can the, these horrible experiences? <laughs> and that's primarily just lots of preparation. Lots of work and thought and preparation. And I, I would break down all creativity to three elements. This is how you succeed as a creative person. There are three pieces to this puzzle. Number one is inspiration. I have an idea or I have an idea for something I want to do. It's painting, it's sculpting, it's pitching. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's step one. That's kind of the easiest step. If you're a creative person, you get ideas. They just come to you. You can't create them. They just end up in, you just wake up and your inbox has got something in there. And you go, oh, look at that. Something just landed here. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's step one. Step two is execution. Execution is pretty obvious you have the idea now we execute the idea is this what you wanted to do is this a good version of what that idea was mm -hmm. this is where most people stop <laughs> at that point right they have a good idea they execute the idea and then they cross their fingers and and really hope that it works and have lots of excuses ready for when it doesn't but the third piece of success in a creative field is detail, obsessive detail. And detail is, in comedy, as important as inspiration as in, it's, and execution. These, these are three equal-sized pieces yeah. of this puzzle. If, I mean, this happens to every comedian every night. I have bits, I have jokes, they work, they never miss... It's a good joke. People like it. Every time I say it in this way, it always works. If I just have a little slight catch in my throat in, in the middle of one word, just and if I go, it's, it's inc incredible. If incredible comes out like that, instead of it's incredible, if I go, it's in incredible, just that little thing in there, in the, in the first syllable, it's gone. It's gone. The audience is like, what happened? Did you get nervous? They're distracted. They're, <laughs> what, what, something went wrong. So in comedy, jokes are extremely fragile things because they have to be exactly right. 
to work. And so your process of discovering this as a stand-up yourself, can you take us through? I mean, you said in one other interview I read that you were, quote, born in 76 when I think you did stand up for the first time. And just how did it go from stepping on a stage doing stand up for the first time to, let's say, doing The Tonight Show, which I guess was like the pinnacle for a stand up? It's so funny to, for me to look back on and think of how incredibly frustrated and cranky I was <laughs> that, I mean, I've been doing this four years. Why aren't I on TV? Right. I was so stupid. So, you know, just that when you're young, you're so dumb. <laughs> yeah, I started in 76. I got on The Tonight Show in 1981. But, I mean, four years in comedy is really like your first week on a job. Yeah. By the end of the week, you kind of know how to do the job. But you're not good at it. There's no such thing as a natural. You just get up there and you've got it. There is such a thing. There is such a thing. Unless you've been hired to play the punchline in Atlanta and you're doing eight shows and you want to kill eight out of eight. Yeah. That you're not going to do. You're not going to do that. I'll never forget the first time I did incredibly well on stage. Every comedian has had this experience, too. You go, oh, oh, I got this. I got it. Oh, now I got it. Now I got it. I'll just do what I did last night. I'll do that again tomorrow night. And you just can't recap. And you can't. Yeah. And you can't. So it started at Catch a Rising Star mm -hmm. and then Comic Strip. Mm -hmm. And so I believe you were... The, the talk show elements, you build up to The Tonight Show, so you're doing Cavett. Why, is, why was it such a huge deal to do The Tonight Show? It, it's funny. TV, we, we think of it. I think people my age think of TV as big. It was bigger then. Yeah. It actually was much smaller then. TV's actually bigger now. It's just the little uh, cubby holes are smaller, but there's so much more of it. But in 1980, The Tonight Show was the absolute only thing that legitimized you as a real comedian. Other than that, it was kind of your idea and you were hoping other people would go along with it. But you go on The Tonight Show, it's, it's like being a professional athlete. I think there's that, probably that point for athletes, you know, if you're playing in college, but you get drafted, this is real now. This is real. You, you really are this. So that's what The Tonight Show meant. Besides the glamour of L.A. and Johnny Carson, and this is what Cary Grant goes on TV. I mean, you know, besides all that, yeah. there was a, a, it made you a real professional. And was it through your appearances on NBC that they first decided they wanted to work with no, you? No. They never had any interest in working with me. <laughs> they never spoke with me. They never called me. Right. They, I don't even know if they even knew I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny, isn't it? I mean, and it, this actually never even crossed my mind <laughs> that, gee, I've been on The Tonight Show for nine years. I wonder why no one's ever called me for anything, right, right. anything. I got lots of stand-up gigs, right. and that was great. And I was living and working and doing my thing, and that was really what I wanted. But, you know, you move to L.A. because you think, well, movies and TV, that's where they do that stuff out there, you know? So I'll go out there. Maybe I'll get some of that stuff. Well, is it? We had... <laughs> 
Bill Maron, who was saying, like, when you guys were coming up, your generation of, of people doing this, the ultimate thing was to get a TV series, is what yeah. he... And you did with Benson, but it was not very long-lived. No, it didn't work. So what did you... But there was there was some lesson in that that you could apply going forward, just that maybe this, this isn't what you should be aiming for? I, I reacted. I, I did three episodes, then got fired. No one bothered to even tell me I was fired. <laughs> and I showed up for work, sat down at the table for the table read. That's how a sitcom starts every week. Everybody sits down at a big table with the script. And I sit down, I go, hey, where's my script? And they go, come here, come here. <laughs> You're not on the show anymore. And they had no oh. reason? It was terrible. It was stupid. It was, I, was, I was the governor's joke writer. I don't know if you even remember the show. You wouldn't remember the show. But anyway, I had a very violent psychological reaction to someone else controlling my fate. That bothered me deeply. And I said, I will never be in that position ever again. I'm curious why I think from the very beginning you've had this sort of approach to comedy that you could call conservative in the sense that you go up there, you dress nicely, you don't swear, mm -hmm. you're not talking about sex or politics very often. Mm -hmm. Why did that become your MO and do you feel that that could have limited early options? Obviously it worked out, but like was it... What would be limiting? It seems like that was increasingly, has been increasingly what comics do now those right things that yes you, so was it a strategy or is that just your default no I, I think it's kind of like asking someone why is your personality the way it is yeah it's just yeah this is who, who i am i don't know why nobody knows why they are why their personality has the different aspects that it has right so it, it's funny um you know politics is just not something i'm funny with that's why i don't do that i mean that's number one in comedy is what are you funny with mm -hmm. when you talk about this you're funny you know when Jim Gaffigan talks about food he's funny yeah. <laughs> when I talk about horses I'm funny I don't know why I've, I've always had horses in my act I don't know why <laughs> I find horses very funny <laughs> so that that's kind of where your act comes from as far as the the swearing that came from wanting to get on the tonight show yeah and then I just kind of like that style I kind of like the challenge of it I don't think audiences care, really. It's just a style that I like. And it makes me... Uh, I was watching a, a comedian last night that I love. And I know if I said to him, let's do that same set again, but take out all the swearing. And let's see what we have. Let's see how the audience reacts without those words. Just take out all the F words and the S words. Yeah. And let's just see. And he knows. And I know. It's gone. <laughs> that there's nothing. Nothing. There, nothing. It's ninety-five percent of the act is gone. Now it doesn't mean what he's doing isn't funny, and it doesn't mean that he's. Again, if you want to go back to inspiration, execution, detail. Again, the detail. So you want to do a bit about why, when you call someone's voicemail, is there that whole long speech before the beat? <laughs> it's just too long a speech. Right. You know, that's a decent idea for a bit. Okay, so now you gotta explain why that bothers you, or why the way it should be, or whatever you want to go with it. But if you're if you're gonna go, I mean, it's just effing stupid. If that's the end of the bit, well, you didn't really solve the Rubik's cube then. <laughs>
but you could probably get away with it. Mm-hmm. And Arnie says, well, he had a very funny bit about voicemail, <laughs> you know. So that's the game I, I enjoy playing. Is it the smartest or the most productive or makes the most money? Or I don't know. I, I I've kind of come to this point of, with comedy that it's a guitar. You, you go in a music store and you buy a guitar. When you buy the guitar, the guy doesn't say, here's what you do with it. <laughs> you do whatever you want with it. Right. You know, right. you want to sit in your room and play. You want to play for your girlfriend. You want to be a rock star. Do whatever you want. So that, that's my attitude. You've said that you have a hard time socializing with people who are not fellow comedians and that you meet, like a lot of comedians, a lot of the criteria for someone who might be on the spectrum. And I wonder, is there a specific type of person that always ends up in comedy? Is that just specific to you? Or do you think that that's a common trend, that there's something about the people who do this that they gravitate towards this? No. Absolutely no rhyme or reason yeah. to any of it. I mean, you were talking about it, uh, having a comfortable childhood, you know, financially. It's probably not the greatest thing to have. You need a lot of drive. The reason comedy can't be taught is 90% of it is raw drive. And when you come from a situation where you're not... I mean, I was never uncomfortable, but I did want... A, a better life. I wanted a better life, a more interesting life. That was my drive. Interesting. How did you and Larry David first cross paths, and why do you think you two hit it off? We crossed paths in the clubs, in the comedy clubs in the 70s, at Catch a Rising Star in the improv. And everybody talks with everybody. You just stand in the bar. It was a great time. It was a great life. You just, every night, you, you slept as late as you wanted. <laughs> And every night at 8 or 9 o'clock, you got dressed and you went out and you knew you were going to see all these people that you liked and that were funny and fun to talk to. And there was girls around and you're going to get up on stage and you're going to work on your stuff. It was just wonderful. It was fantastic. You were in heaven. You didn't have to do anything all day long. All you have to do is be at that club every night and wait to try and get on stage. And so everybody talks with everybody, and obviously you gravitate. And Larry and I, whenever we would talk, it was just in two seconds we were off to the races of something insanely hilarious, obsessive, and usually minute. <laughs> in, in the whatever the issue was, it was usually something minute, which is my particular yeah. comedic fetish. Right. Small things. So when I got this opportunity at NBC, I thought, gee, I would love a show that sounds like that. And the opportunity was that they said, pitch us a show? Or when you say the opportunity... My manager, George Shapiro, wrote a letter to Brandon Tartikoff, and here was the whole letter. It was, call me a crazy guy, but I think someday Jerry Seinfeld's going to have a series on NBC. That was the whole letter. And he said, why don't you come in, and we'll talk about it. And that's how the TV series got started. If he doesn't write that letter, they never call me in. Why is the question? I don't know why. (laughs) Even I didn't wonder, gee, I wonder why they're not interested in me for anything. (laughs) And now all of a sudden. So you were the one, you you then say to Larry, let's let's pitch something? I said I had this meeting in NBC, and uh, they said that they would listen to an idea if I had an idea which I didn't have. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then we were Catch a Rising Star. We walked across the street to a Korean deli, as we usually did, to get something to eat. And then you go back to the club. You know, you just get some kind of bar, a fig bar or something, whatever they have. <laughs> and we start making fun of all the stuff, like you do. I mean, there's all kind of bizarre things in there, you know. It's a natural comedian environment to make fun of <laughs> stuff. He said, this is what the show, this is, you should do a show like this. I go, yeah, that would be fun. Let's do a show like this. Where people just, two comedians, nothing to do, walking in and out of uh, places in New York, talking about stuff. That was it. And so it is, though, just legend, not correct, <laughs> that it was pitched as like, this whole idea of a show about nothing. No. That was nonsense, right? No, the nonsense. That was, that was made up by the press. Yeah. Because it was just a line in the series. When you guys were talking about Jerry, the show within yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did that grate on you? Like they're quite, no. you're, you're writing a show that's obviously about something. I, I don't care what people do. Yeah. <laughs> do whatever you want. Is it true that the Abbott and Costello show was a big influence for, the, for Seinfeld? Yes. How so? Crispness and precision. Now, that's an act. If you want to study comedy, you study that act. Everybody loves who's on first. Why is it so funny? Well, it's a great piece of writing. It's a funny idea. Go back to our three steps. Funny idea. I mean, if you can believe that someone is so stupid that when you tell them the first baseman's name is who, <laughs> they, they don't go, no, nah, that's not true. They go, okay, his name's who. Second baseman is what. Third baseman's, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so if you accept that premise, right. that's your inspiration. Uh, the execution is the writing out of this confusing conversation. Write it all out. This was not their routine, by the way. Many vaudeville comedy teams did this bit. The precision with which they do it. The timing, the words, every word is perfect. If you were a guest star on my show and you came on for the week, if you missed a word, one word, in the lines that we've written for you, you're going to get a look from me. <laughs> it's just not because that's the way we executed the, the series. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. People remember Seinfeld as a giant head and the cornerstone of this must-see TV era and all of that, but it actually got off to a slow start Very and kind slow. of teetered, right, for a little bit. Long time. Years. Yeah. Years. I was working for four years on the show. In fact, I don't know why I was thinking about it this morning. I was thinking, I used to, I used to be going to the show and we're making the show, and it was a fantasy. I wonder what it would be like to do a show 
that was popular. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that would be like. That must be so fun. <laughs> and I remember standing there with Larry Miller one time. We were watching a scene with Michael Richards. And we were going, that's funny, isn't it? He seems so, so funny. I don't understand why people don't like this show. <laughs> was it going, they moved it, I think, in They moved slot? it to Thursday night. Yeah. And that did it. Yeah. Explain that to me. I'll never understand it. They didn't like the show on Wednesday night. <laughs> People didn't like the show on Wednesday night. Can you understand that? I don't understand that, but they loved it on Thursday. It's <laughs> crazy. So that's how crazy comedy is. So that's why you want to eliminate variables, because yeah. it's so crazy. Amazing. Can you explain there was apparently a rule that you guys always abided by, no hugging, no learning. What does that mean, and why was that pivotal to the success? I, I, I remember when we said that. All it meant was nobody wants to learn from a comedy you know, learn somewhere else. Learn from your grandfather. We're going to be funny. Yeah. We're two stand-up comics. When you watch stand-up comedy, do you learn anything? Do you feel anything? No. You just laugh. And that seems like a pretty good product. Pretty, it seems like a pretty useful service that you are providing. Make me laugh. So what this meant, though, was that there's We're no... We're doing comedy here. Yeah. No We're either moral sa- takeaway... Nothing like that, right? How arrogant to presume that you could teach (laughs) in addition to entertaining. It's just unbelievably arrogant. No, our thing was we're either setting up or paying off. Every line in the script is either setting up a joke or is a joke. That's it. When Larry left after season seven, your plate got heavier because you became the sole showrunner, Mm -hmm, right? mm Mm-hmm. How did that change the show and the experience of it for you? It was different, but it was still fun. I loved the writing staff, loved the cast. Instead of working with Larry, I would just pick two or three writers and say, okay, you're the, you're the team this week, and we're going to write the script. The elements which had moved around in different places in the show of you actually having, or the excerpts of you doing stand-up, I think, went away. Right, yeah, that went away. I just was too, too much work for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But why had that been in there in the first place? Why was that important? The original idea of the show was how a comedian gets his material. Mm -hmm. And we thought that would be a nice way to kind of break up the show a little bit. And I don't even know if it ever really worked, but it just was something we did. Yeah. The finale of the series, as everybody will recall, was was a phenomenon. 76.3 million viewers, 58% of all viewers that night. No show since has bettered those numbers. Probably never will, right? Yeah. Well, Super Bowl. No series, we should say. Right, okay. So what was the coolest part about doing a show that was actually, truly, genuinely a water cooler show where people would go and in mass numbers dissect and talk about what you had done? That just doesn't really happen anymore. No, it doesn't really happen. Uh, To be perfectly candid with you, it, it was a lot of pressure. I'd probably have done the show a few more years if the show didn't become so popular. Really? Yeah, because I felt a responsibility then to not disappoint the audience at the end. That that the show needed to have like a finish, needed to have a needed to have an ending. Normally, a, a TV series is like a deli. If people are coming in, you keep the deli open. You know, why would we close the deli? People still want sandwiches. <laughs> and obviously, people liked the show. They wanted to keep watching it. We were making good money. Why why would we end it? We we ended it because. We wanted the audience to have a great feeling about the experience that they had watching it. It wasn't just a business. 
But plus, you guys were kind of burning out, right? It was a lot of work. It was mostly me. You? It, it was mostly me. No one's supposed to run the show and star in the show. And write. And, and write and do. cast and yeah. edit. That's, those are all different jobs. Right. Most people burn out just executive producing. Mm-hmm. That's a burnout job. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that job, and I was in every scene every week, almost. I knew it was about to crash and burn because I just couldn't function anymore. I couldn't keep going. So after you've had the kind of success that we've just talked about with a show, is it daunting to do anything else? Because how do you how do you equal what you've done? Well, I took a while. Yeah. But was it something you were even thinking, this is daunting to me to plan a next move? Eh, I didn't. You don't you care. Know. Screw it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and plus, how, how do you... Why, why look at the most negative aspect of this incredible <laughs> gift and wonderful thing that you've received? Right. Why try and tweeze around one dark part of it? That's, that's your problem. Uh, it probably is. I'm yeah. happy about the whole thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How quickly did you decide you wanted to go back to doing stand-up regularly? Which um, is not, for, not right away. I was, I, actually, it was Chris Rock. I, I, I went to see him at the Universal Amphitheater in L.A., couple years later and I, I, I wasn't doing anything I, I learned to play pool really well is what I did <laughs> there was a place in my neighborhood called Amsterdam Billiards on Amsterdam in 76 I used to go there every night and that was what I did after the series but then I went to see Chris in LA I sat in the audience and I watched him do this fantastic set and I thought wow that's an amazing thing to give people a solid hour of funny stuff. What, what a great thing. I, said, I, I thought I would like to do that. I thought, hey, I, I know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. I just yep. have to go back. Now, when you went back to doing it, you were no longer Jerry Seinfeld, one of the group of guys that might get up on a night and just be another in the line. You were mm-hmm. now a household name and face. Was it different for you to gather material when people no. were no longer behaving normally? No. No, people are behaving normally. Do you feel that you're not behaving normally? I, I hope so, but yeah. I mean, if we went out on the street, it might be different, right? If we no. walk, no, no, people no. are just people are just yeah. I don't know what you think I am. I don't know if you think uh, <laughs> it's like uh, 1958 and I'm Elvis. Uh, people don't really care. That surprises me. Yeah, <laughs> you'd be surprised. So, was the joke writing process any different? Nope. Here's the thing I loved in the Olympics this uh, summer in Rio. Mm-hmm. I totally became obsessed with Katie Ledecky. Yeah. Uh, she was doing an, an interview. You know, she's famous for her training. Yeah. She has amazing training discipline. And she was doing one of those interviews that they do, you know, and they asked her, what is your secret? She says, the secret is there's no secret. <laughs> and I, I actually remember Chris Rock saying this to me also to mention him again. We were out having dinner. I said... I'm going to start up again. I'm going to I'm going to go after it again and he said, "Well, you know, there's no shortcut." I go, "That that's the kind of relaxing part. There's nothing you have to know. You just got to grind it out." But for some comedians in the past, I'm not I wonder what you make of guys like Bob Hope who did pay for jokes. Yeah. Is that something that you find just foreign, totally crazy or is it Yeah. You're I mean, very per- your stuff is personal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's just that. That's a, a another style thing. Yeah. After Seinfeld, people had this 
they would talk about this the Seinfeld curse. Obviously, if we only talked about Julia, she's blown that away. Yeah. With five. I think Larry did nicely. Larry did nicely. Yeah. You're doing fine. What did you make of that? And and then was there any period when you were like, this is just bizarre that? No. I mean, it's it's perfectly natural for people to. Look, anything that goes, any balloon that flies that high, mm-hmm. so everyone's going to go, there's got to be some way to shoot this down, you know? <laughs> People don't like it in a way. It makes them, they feel diminished in some way. I understand that. So they cooked up this thing. If there was a, a bump or whatever after Seinfeld, I, I get the sense from what I've read in other interviews, you put a lot of time into B-movie and were not mm-hmm. thrilled with how it turned out. And then with the marriage ref, but there were takeaways that you were able to apply to things like comedians and cars. And I just wonder if you can share that, you know, even in things that are somewhat disappointing to you, there you can you can apply things from them. What would those have been? Well, the marriage draft was fantastic for me because I learned that when people are on camera and they can't move and they're stuck in their seats you can completely reconstruct the conversation in, the, in editing. I didn't know that. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people knew that. I mean, you can't do it on a sitcom because people are moving around. So if someone says something over here, if you yeah. want to put it over there, well, then they would jump across the set, so you can't. But if they're not moving, like if they're in a car or if they're sitting at a table, I could, I could put the end of the conversation at the beginning right. if I want. So that's what I learned. And I learned that I also had a, a little flair for it. I kind of was able to see the conversation in my mind and reorder it in my mind in a, a better sequence. And that also, I think, without an audience, people would be more forthcoming, more honest? Yeah. Well, the, the audience affects comedians dramatically. We're, we're their slaves, happily. We, all we want to do is please them. So that's different from kind of thinking inside your head of things, you know, that you may want to say that a comedian will get a thought in his mind or just very much like we're talking now. And for example, I don't know, just to go back to that inspiration execution detail, I would never say that on stage. I I would think that's like if someone on, I do a Q and a after my show, how do you, how do you come up with your material? How do you write your material? That thing would pop into my head. And I, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't say it. Why? Because it's going to be death quiet. People don't want to hear that. It's not that they don't want to hear it. You want to make them laugh. You've been doing it your whole life. It's your job. It's your life force. Audiences are there to laugh. So why, when you could have just obviously been playing golf or sitting in your yard or doing whatever, what made you decide I want to come back out and not only do another project with Comedians in Cars, but do a project that is going to go on a website that there's no guarantee that, you know, there was going to be an audience. I know that some of the people that you pitched it to were skeptical, right? All of them. Yeah. So what what was the driver for even doing it? Just to hang out with comedians. Yeah, just to hang out with comedians. I, I, I love it so much. I mean, believe me, it was a great surprise to me that people liked watching it. We did 10 to start, yeah. and I really figured that was it. <laughs> you know, It was just an experiment. I thought, I wonder if I could take 10 different people, spend two or three hours with each of them, and distill that down into something 
entertaining. That was, that was the question I wanted an answer to. And who did you imagine the audience would be? Comedy geeks. Yeah. I, I had noticed that people are much more interested in comedians and what they do and how they do it than when I started. And I, of course, love that, that people are interested in it. And I thought maybe they would like to hear comedians talking amongst themselves about what they do and how they feel. And so, yeah, that was the idea. Because where, I guess, where else have we seen like Letterman or Howard Stern or somebody just actually kind of let their hair down in the way that they do with, with you and talk about the process? I mean, that's how do you pick your guests? Are just they, people I like. Yeah. People are I any of them strangers? That, yeah. Yeah. Just people I think are funny. Yeah. That's the show. How do you pick which car to match a person with? I used to just pick cars that I was wanted to drive and see what they're like. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got into this thing of I'm going to match the car to the person and people seem to like that. So then we started doing that. I've read that you don't do prep before having someone on Nothing. the show. I'll, I'll read the Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> I'll read those three paragraphs. Right. Where, they, where were they? Where'd they grow up? Right. That was the Larry King approach as well. I sometimes thought he should have maybe done a little prep, but, for, but for you, is it just adds to the spontaneity? Is that the point that you'll just, things will come out if you... It, seemed, it seems to. I seem to have more fun yeah. just pursuing uh, what, what strikes me in the moment, and questions do seem to pop up. I, I didn't plan to ask Judd Apatow, what do you want from life at this point? What's left? Yeah. I don't know. That would, I don't know. By the way, to go back to Larry King, I can't believe anybody still really thinks I was angry when he said that your show was canceled. <laughs> I, I, I actually, to be honest, I'd miss that. What happened? So I was on Larry King, oh, it was probably 2003 or something like that. And for some reason, he said, so when your show ended, it was canceled. <laughs> And I went into this whole, to me, what I thought was a very funny thing about, let's get a copy of my resume out here for Larry. And <laughs> I go, canceled, really? And I, and I pretended to be angry, and right. everybody thought They thought was, you really were. They thought I was, but I wasn't. Well, I saw an interview where, because you were asked about how they ended Leno prematurely when he was still on top, and they said, what would have happened if somebody had come to you and said during Seinfeld's run, we want to end it. And I think you had a funny, <laughs> it's like when I would have stopped laughing. I right, <laughs> yeah. So how hands-on are you with the post-production of these episodes of Comedians? I love doing the whole thing. Yeah. I, I really do. So I watch the whole, everything we shot, and then I pick out the pieces I like. I do the whole thing. I, I enjoy it. The I really love doing it. fun, yeah. Yeah, it's just fun. It's you know, it's such a nice, small project. It's something very nice. We have a very small little team. We all get along and just kind of do whatever we want. I've never gotten any notes from Sony about do more of this, less of that. You know, nobody cares. Is it true it's really done with GoPros? Yeah. Or, really? Yeah. So you just mount a few GoPros yeah. and that's it? That's it. And it kind of... They have some fancier cameras that they use, I think, in the coffee shop. But I don't know what yeah. they are. How did... Just speaking about the season for which you've you've been nominated a couple of times before, but now you're in the the big category. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it seems like a highlight of this season must have been going to the White House. That was huge. So, how did that come about, and what was the process like? How did it go down at the White House of when you 
you know, you, the president, I don't think, is even allowed to drive. He's not allowed to drive, yeah. So what was, what was the whole day well, like? Well, the day was the wildest, really the wildest day I think I've ever had <laughs> in the profession. Yeah. It's just, it was, yeah, I, I was just out of my skin the entire day. Going, I, I was so nervous. I couldn't believe I was doing it. It, it made no sense to me. My producer, Tammy Johnston, was the one who made it happen. I said it as a joke. <laughs> I said, why don't we get the president to do the show? And right. she said, I could ask somebody over there. And she's involved with the political debates every season, so she knows a lot of people at the, in politics. And they said yes, and that seemed weird. And then they told us we were going to call you. We wanted to do the show, and that seemed weird. And then the biggest thing to me was the Oval Office bit. Yeah, you're knocking on the window. Knocking on the window of the Oval <laughs> Office like he's my loser friend. Right. <laughs> and why aren't you coming out to meet me? You're making me come all the way up to the door. You fed him the line when you call him up first. Yes, right? when I call you, you say, White House. I'll say, I'd like to speak with the president, please. And you say, speaking. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> now he obviously... That's got to be the biggest thrill of my life. <laughs> that he said, that's funny. Let's do that. I go, okay, great. So he's not officially a comedian, but he's a, he's a very funny guy, I thought guy, he was right? funny enough yeah. in those White House correspondent speeches. His delivery is very, very solid, very funny. God forbid we end up with President Trump, who is, in a, I think, unintentionally funny quite a bit. Yes. Would he qualify as well for comedians in cars? Yes, he would. It would he be would. fun. Yeah, he, he, he is buffoonish enough. <laughs> The long ties, the two, the pinky index uh, pointing. Yeah, I mean, uh, it would probably he's as funny as, as it gets. Closed top, though, right? Otherwise, the hair might. No, I want to see the hair. <laughs> you want to see? Yeah. <laughs> Another very powerful moment, I think, maybe if, if anything could trump the Obama experience, it seems like it might be the Gary Shanley episode. Yes, yes, that was. Yeah, that, that was another one of those things, we, you know, where you kind of feel like the comedy gods are saying to you, do, keep doing what you're doing. This is the right path. You're on the right path. Because it really probably introduced, there's a generation of people since Larry Sanders and other mm -hmm. stuff who now know him perhaps through your yeah. episode. right. And for you to have sort of closure, I would, it's a tragic thing that's happened, but you yes. have to say goodbye. It was unbelievable. I, I, it, it was really even a better gift than the White House was to see Gary one last time. Yeah. Just a couple of big picture things to close this out. What do you make of and how do you explain Seinfeld's enduring popularity, even with people who weren't alive when it initially aired? Just to contextualize this, we had words like shrinkage and yada, yada, yada are common parlance. There's the Seinfeld Today Twitter account. People are still clamoring for a reunion, Hulu okay, paid so, you a fortune for so, the streaming, right? Yeah, so the other night I had dinner with uh, Jimmy Fallon yeah. and his wife, who I love. And he comes to dinner, he brings pictures with him from that night that we did the final episode on Stage 9 at Radford Studios in L.A. He's 22 years old. He doesn't have a ticket to get in. He's with this other comedian, Barry Sobel. They sneak in somehow <laughs> and get in. Wow. 
and he takes pictures of the party and we I stayed up all night that night yeah. and I made some spe- I made a speech and so we're looking at this picture you know and here he is he's 22 hadn't even gotten Saturday Night Live yet mm-hmm. this is spring of 98 and I said you know what the craziest thing about this picture is is that we thought we were standing on the top of Mount Olympus in that moment, professionally mm-hmm, speaking. Mm-hmm. What could be bigger, those numbers you threw out earlier, whatever it was, how many people watched? And The last thing anybody could have dreamed in that moment is that the show was just getting started and that it was yet to find its biggest audience. Modesty prevents me from throwing out the amount of money the show has made yes. from the last episode. Yeah. Off, it's off NBC to today. What is it, though? Is there a nostalgia? I'll tell you what it is. Yeah. It's tight, baby. The it's, show it's, is tight. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, Listen to who's on first. Any comedian. Yeah. Any comedian yeah. that you play that. Take any comedian off the street. If he's half-ass decent. Right. If you play him who's on first and he's never heard it before, if he's any good, the first thing he's going to say after listening to Who's on First by Abbott and Costello is, is he's going to go, man, that is tight. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and if, if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, I believe that's the phrase, then what do you make of the fact that now some have suggested that Friends is Seinfeld with, with the hugging and learning that you guys... No, it's with better-looking people. With better-looking people. We thought they want to do our show with better-looking people. That's what they're doing here. And we thought that should work. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got Big Bang Theory, which is now the closest thing in ratings to Seinfeld. Right. It's still not there yet, but it's perhaps some people say that's Seinfeld with geniuses. It's just interesting that the format continues to... Well, I, I, I think that's a little ridiculous. You think? Yeah. Is Bing Bang Theory, what does that got to do with my show? It's just, a, it's just a, another funny show. What, what shows today, what comedy shows today make you laugh the most? Or do you even watch? You know, which ones do you watch? I loved Portlandia. I love anything Fred Armisen does. Yeah. I love anything uh, Kristen Wiig does. I really like John Oliver. I think he's excellent. Yeah. I mean, I love uh, Bill Maher and Jimmy Fallon and uh, Seth Meyers. I mean, uh, I love, still love SNL. Sitcom, the sitcom seems to have kind of, it's not sure what it's supposed to be in this moment. It seems, it feels a little confused. Well, the multi-cam sitcom seems to be in danger, right? It's Chuck it seems Laurie. to be in danger unless you look at all the numbers. They, they are the most successful yeah. audience-wise. Yeah. Audiences like to know that was the big joke. When it's a single camera show, you're listening, you go, that was funny. Was that, was that really <laughs> funny? I think that was really funny. Right. I don't know. That seemed like a really funny joke. Right. But I don't know because <laughs> there's nobody there to laugh at it. I know you're, you're, you've said many times you're not interested in a reunion mm-hmm. or a revival, but could it work in the 21st century? Of course it could. Would it just be a, a different challenges because things are a little easier? It would have to be one thing and one thing only. And what is that thing? Tight. tight. <laughs> <laughs> just write it tight. Perform it tight. <laughs> cut it tight. When we would have guest stars on the show that stunk, which happens. You're the, uh, you own the, go- the parking garage this week. That's your part. If the person stunk, 
you would just say to them, just say it louder and faster, <laughs> and it will work. <laughs> <laughs> louder and faster. Every, okay. every, every person on the show, we said, very good, you're doing great. <laughs> just louder and faster. <laughs> now, one of the things that I know has, has increased since the end of Seinfeld is the sort of political correctness in society. Yes. That's something you've said is graded on you. How do you think it's affected comedy overall? Lewis Black assures me. Yeah. Uh, we did an episode the other day. And I absolutely am mad for Lewis yeah. Black. He's one of the funniest people I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, he assures me that we are going to crush the PC culture eventually. <laughs> Comedi- comedians will do it. Right. Because you can't tell us what to say. You don't like it? Change the channel. <laughs> By all appearances, everything that you've said and done, you're a comedian who acts, not an actor who does comedy, right? Right. But if... I don't even know how anyone could make that confusion. The mistake. Yeah. But, well, no, but, uh, but I, I wonder, though, if you were to get a call from somebody who you know, like a Steven Spielberg or somebody who yeah. said, we'd love for you to be in our film. That sounds like fun. You would do it? Uh, I might do it. I doubt it. If, if, a guy like that is going to be smart enough to know no one's putting me in Star Wars. Nobody wants a character in Star Wars that says, you know, all the backflipping doesn't really hurt the guy that you're fighting. We could just lose the backflipping and just get on with the laser fighting. You know, you don't want that. That would be my character. And nobody wants that in Star Wars. A guy who's logical. Guy on the side. Yeah. yeah. And like... My kids, I watch a lot of Star Wars because yeah, yeah. of my kids. And I thought maybe if I was in Star Wars, maybe instead of Darth Sidious, I could be, are you serious? <laughs> that would be your guy. You want to attack an entire planet? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I, I think there, you know, there could be a need for it. Really? Are you yeah. serious? Yeah. <laughs> that would be a, a, a Star Wars. I'd be, a, I'd be on the dark side. We're going to be fine with that. Well, hope somebody's listening. Yeah. Last question. Aside from continuing Comedians in Cars, which it sounds like you would like to do for the foreseeable. I am still enjoying it, yes. Is there anything that you have on your bucket list of professional type things that you have not done yet that you would really like to do? What's left to accomplish? I'm a guy, you know, I'm really a guy who enjoys the small, simple life. And there's nothing smaller than... than Stand-up comedy, just a new bit, and you're in front of an audience, and you're trying to find out if there's something funny here, and that, that's what I love to do. People like it. I like to, that, that, That's the life I like. It's very free. It's very free. The trouble for me at this point in my life, and having been fortunate to have done some things that worked, is you don't want to go back into that, that I, you feel like, to me, Gulliver with the Lilliputians, he's all tied down with the ropes. That's how I would feel, you know, if I tried to make something else. I just, I can't, I don't want to talk to people about what I want to do. Yeah, just do it. Just do it. Well, thank you for all the laughs. Thank you for this. Thank and, you. Uh, appreciate it. My pleasure. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.